One evening, soon after the six o'clock meal, he began to mutter in his usual way. I asked him sharply to be quiet. He didn't answer. I cursed him. He said nothing for a moment, then called out, You dare to insult me, you bastard? You know, and everyone here and outside knows you're just a bastard. Your father officially disowned you in front of the whole country. With this insult, he just declared open warfare for this man who pretended to be elsewhere. So devoted was he to religious life and prayer, of course missed nothing of what went on in the prison. One practice that every single one of us had adopted was to listen carefully to everything everyone recounted about their lives, their pasts, and their adventures. We'd pick up on anything that one day, should an argument break out, might be used to hurt them. We'd make a note of each man's weak points and strong suits. I was no exception to the rule. I told my life story, including this exchange, which had been reported to me back to me in the early days when we were in a normal prison. My father, who was close to the king, was asked this question by his ruler after the events at Tzchirat. So, Binabina, are you happy about what your son's done? My father, presumably in self-defense, said, Majesty, I do not recognize this individual. A traitor to the king cannot be my son. The response must have pleased the monarch, since he never mentioned the subject again. And now the story had been thrown back in my face with the obvious intention to wound deeply. Captain Benduro had never confided in anyone. He believed his silence and reserve shielded him from the murderous attacks we could launch. He hadn't counted on the inspiration of Satan, ever on the prowl for situations like this, and on my memory, which that day proved Machiavellian. I'd known for years that confrontation with him was inevitable, so I'd planned my tactics in minute detail. I was convinced my adversary was a giant with feet of clay. I knew when and how to strike. But first I had to warm him up, push him to such a degree of exasperation that he'd be incapable of reasoning. The argument lasted the whole night, until the guards arrived the next morning. In this type of contest, the loser was the one who fell silent first. In the middle of the night, at the height of the argument, my tone cold, almost calm, I said, Cuckold! So that was Marsha Lynx Quayley reading to you um, from the Moroccan writer Aziz Binabin's book, Tazmamart. This is Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode 51 of Ulak. Uh, I'm in Amman, Jordan, and Marsha is speaking to me from Rabat, Morocco. Hi, Marsha. Hey. Uh, and we will be talking about Tazmamart, Morocco's most infamous prison, uh, where uh, Binebin himself spent close to two decades. And uh, his book, which has just been translated into English, is the latest edition in quite a few different books and accounts uh, that have been, uh, that have slowly surfaced over the years and made uh, the existence of this one secret prison known and have sort of added to um, Two accounts of what what the experience of the the military officers who ended up there was. Um, Binabin, as he mentions, uh, came from a family that was actually extremely close to the king. His father was uh, the king's sort of confidant and court jester, uh, and he was a, a young officer in the army, and he participated uh, in a coup against Hassan II in 1971. 
uh, when the king had been on the throne for 10 years uh, and uh, and which was followed by another coup the following year uh, in 72. And uh, the officers who, many of whom claimed to have been ignorant of, of the planning of the coup and to have had nothing to do with it, uh, and to have just been following orders and not known what was going on. Uh, and, uh, but they were, they were mass trials. And then, um, some of them were sent, uh, in particular to this, to this secret prison where they, even though their sentences expired after three, five, 10 years, um, those who didn't die spent, uh, 18 years there. So, um, yeah, so the word Tasmamart is synonymous really with this, uh, sort of the worst time in Morocco's so-called years of lead. Um, and that that passage that you just read, Marcia, though, is about, in a way, is sort of surprising because it's about um, not so much solidarity, but, I mean, not surprising, actually, but it's about how the prisoners, sort of the enmity and the way they can get on each other's nerves uh, and, the, and the way they can have, spend a lot of their time arguing with each other uh, even after having been in prison together for years and years. Yeah, I mean, I did find an element of that to be tremendously human. The, you know, in the, in the absence of literally anything else to do, uh, that picking fights and getting on each other's nerves becomes sort of, you know, a sport. Yeah, especially that as as he describes this prison and as, uh, as others have described it, um, they were they were in these extremely small rooms. I don't think you could stand up. It was like three meters by about a meter and a half, I think, and, right. and not tall enough to stand up, and 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 in darkness. And so their world was an auditory world for the most part. I mean, they they learned to recognize each other's voices, um, but uh, and it, it seems to be all... also a, a, an auditory world and a world of smells, at least in, in this account. Right. Right. Almost all of them unpleasant, but yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so this is the latest book. This book was to, to come out in, in, in quite a long series of books. And, you know, in the first place, when this prison was created in, in secret in 1973, its existence was denied, uh, so so for a long time there wasn't writing about the prison there wasn't any information about the prison or the people who had ended up there um and uh it was only very slowly that its existence came to be known like partly through letters that were smuggled out by prisoners uh and then eventually but you know quite late uh in in 91 i think through a through a book that was a, that was very you know controversial by a french journalist Gilles Perrault uh, called our friend the king which sort of exposed the worst human rights abuses of the, of the years of lead of the 60s and 70s and 80s in morocco um but for a long time you didn't nobody nobody knew anything about this and then afterwards slowly and this is just the latest of a series of books, and we're going to sort of talk about some of the other ones, um, which were, I can't remember which was the first one to come out. So the first uh, the first thing to come out was there was a chapter of Marzuki's book 
The Pigeon of Tuzma Mart that came out in 1993. Um, uh, but for, you know, they were sort of testing the waters, I think. And, um, and then it was, a, a, and they, they said they had it written for a long time before that. Then uh, there were three Burakat brothers there um, who were not involved in this uh, initial coup. And they say they don't know why they were arrested. Although Aziz Binabina sort of suggests that they were told to keep quiet, but he had a book that came out in English in 1998 um uh and then it then but the really the the big shift started i think when Muhammad Rais it wasn't a book but serialized in Ar- in an arabic newspaper between 1999 and 2000 were his accounts which were later translated to french and and turned into a book um something like return from the bottom of hell but then it was ahmed marzuki's book that came out in 2000 tasma mart cell 10 that was you know, a, a bestseller in, in France and Morocco, or that's how it's categorized. I think it, I, that's the one that I've heard people talk about the most. And Ahmed's yeah, experience. Um, yeah, that's the one that I had read previously and actually slightly confused with, with this one. Um, th- that, that was the one that I was always sort of, and I don't think that has been translated into English, has it? No, that cell, uh, Tasma Mart cell 10 uh, has not been translated into English. Um, Medhat Burakat, also another uh, Burakat brother, uh, brought out a book in French in 2000. And then it was uh, Tahr Benjaloun who interviewed Aziz Binabine, um, who fictionalized uh, a story, This Blinding Absence of Light, that came out in 2001. And then there were continued to be other ones that came out after. I, I think that this one, uh, Bina Bean's own story was the most recent and that came out in French in 2009. And so I want to I want to go back and sort of touch upon the relationship between this book and some of those other books, mm-hmm. um, in a, in, in a moment, because it's, it is sort of interesting how, some of the same stories, both different books tell some of the different same stories or different versions of the same story. And in one case, the same man's story is actually the source for two books. Right. Um, but, but I also just want to talk about what, what this book describes, like what it, what it sort of contains first, maybe. Um, so it strikes me that it's a very straightforward kind of account which doesn't describe in much detail at all the events leading up to their imprisonment. Yeah, it I either mean, it, seems that he has forgotten them or they've gotten somehow scrambled in his mind since then. Yeah, the the events leading up to it, to me, were somewhat... I, I had There were a number of times when I was confused by his account and had to sort of go back and do some other reading to match it against other things. Um, well, I mean, so the 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 Skirat coup is confusing in the sense that there's a lot of things that aren't known about it, and and it's called Skirat because it took place at the royal palace in Skirat, which is just outside of Rabat by the beach, um, and you know, basically Hassan II, who was the son of the Sultan who led Morocco, you know, out of French out of being a French protectorate and into independence and who was extremely popular and who died suddenly, uh, Mohammed V. 
Hassan II, his young, uh, it turns out to be incredibly ruthless and ambitious son, uh, assumes power. And, and it becomes increasingly clear that he has no intention of sharing that power with anybody, not with political parties, uh, you know, in, in, and he and and he enters onto a collision course with like a number of political forces in the country, uh, you know, from the nationalist movements to the left, um, um, and of course you have in other Arab countries at that time, right? The movement is towards there's there's military coups and sort of socialist army led republics being established left and right. So there's this sort of it's in the air, right? Mm. <laughs> the officers are sort of trying their chance everywhere. Um, and, uh, and, and I think there's this really resentment of, of the, of the, of, of the sense of the corruption of the palace, right. of how, of, of the, of the train of life of the king, who was by all accounts, like a party boy, playboy, um, very bon vivant, um, and personally interested only in power but surrounded himself with people who were also very much interested in money <laughs> and and that was and that was you know his entourage you know th things things were happening that were that were shocking uh to 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 some uh, you know elements of society and the army and and so this coup happens and the big question though has always been like how much the 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 officers and the conscripts involved knew what they were doing right because because they claimed you know that they that they were told they were going on this operation against subversive elements you know and 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 they land at this beautiful villa and you know somebody opens fire and suddenly everybody's shooting you know they're shooting down the guests at the king's birthday party is what they're shooting down but yeah they you know, it's, it's unclear. And then also like who was actually implicated, which of the generals actually knew and was on board because a bunch of the generals were summarily executed immediately, like within the first 24 hours. So you never got to find out a lot of things about who actually was, who orchestrated it and who was complicit. And then also the trial of the, the, the the cadets and the officers was like you know this mass trial and super political and that's the the things were quite arbitrarily done so it's very hard you know i mean all the accounts that you read of course they they deny being aware that they are engaged in a coup like i think that's pretty much universal like nobody admits some of them say that they had some like intimations that something was off right well abina abina does point. yeah he does suggest that that he he start that he suspected, and that it sort right. of slowly dawned on him as as they're going there, and then of course, a as this mysterious shot is fired, that nobody knows where the first shot came from. Right, and but you know all, all of which is 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 imaginable. You know that you would be in this situation. You you have a, the culture of military discipline. Um, you have a culture where people are afraid of sort of speaking out or being critical. You think that your commander, who's both very charismatic and very well connected with the upper echelons of the military, like you're hesitant to challenge him. Um, and then maybe, you know, maybe some, maybe some of them were fine with having a coup. Like they, mm. you know, maybe they thought that that would be better. I mean, uh, in Marzuki's book, which goes into a lot more detail, 
of this opening section, he describes like soldiers sort of like angrily shooting up the buffet in the palace, um, you know, just kind of, you know, going, going wild sort of, uh, you know, and, and just being very aggressive towards the guests and towards the people there is sort of not clear why. Um, and cheering later when the general promises them that this is like the dawn of a new era and Morocco will be for people like them. Uh, you know, obviously they didn't plan it, but they may have in the moment gone along with it, like soldiers have with all sorts of coups. Sure, absolutely. Whereas Bina, in Bina Bina's book, it seems much more like he's just walking around in a daze and other people are walking around in a daze and it's it's unclear what's going on and then suddenly they're taken to prison it's very foggy and it's just it just passes and it's very quick and he gives very few details um i i i think i could be wrong and you know i could be wrong about a number of things because i'm speaking now sort of extemporaneously about this whole period of moroccan history so um you know, I, I I might get a detail here here or there wrong. But I th- I think you know his account of having left the scene and turned himself in. You know, he 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 was among the officers that you know stood out for being pretty clearly against what was happening. Like mm. once it happened, uh, which you know is is not surprising. Um, but yeah, so. He, you, you basically very quickly are in the prison, uh, and and then it just becomes, you know, the book in a way to me read like one long collective obituary because mostly it just tells you, it describes these people and then their death. Right, it's hung together by so and so died in February of nineteen seventy seven. So and so died in March of nineteen seventy eight, and here is the story of their death. Um, it it does read like um, like he wanted to write a memorial of those people who were lost. Yeah, yeah. It, like it's 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 their it's their tombs it's their it's their tombstone in a way. This 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 book. Um, and he tries to sort of remember something about each of them to to give you some biographical information to sort of describe what they were like uh, and to describe how they died. Uh, I mean, and of course it's, you know, it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible story. I mean, they were, they were left in these absolutely inhuman conditions for years and years and years beyond their, the term that they had been convicted for to, to really just, you know, wither away and die there. And to be somehow, I think, a lesson, you know, to everyone else. Right. And I will say, so his is the first account that came out of his cell block, which was where most of the people died. And I think there there have been questions, um, at least among scholars. And I read a very interesting piece by Johanna Selman that we'll link to uh, about this literature of Tazmamart in general. But that that his cell block was the one where the majority of people died. And there was some talk about, you know, the greater privileges that people experienced in the other cell block. The ceiling was higher. There was, as things went on, there was some 
medicine that appeared in that cell block. Uh, Marzuki has um, suggest, you know, has said that they had more discipline in that cell block, that they had a regimented day. Uh, that uh, whereas uh, Binabinas, I mean, they they certainly had the things that they did. They had uh, Quran classes. They tried to memorize things. There was a story time. There was a time people went to bed and were supposed to be silent. But as you you know, as you saw in in this excerpt that I read, there was also you know a lot of or at least in that moment. It, so they they argued through the night, even though it was supposedly the rule that you were supposed to be silent through the night. And bitterly trying to do damage to each other. So there's some suggestion that in that cell block, for perhaps psychological reasons, there was more death because people fell apart. You know, or or it could be that the the physical conditions were also harder in that cell block. I mean, when you read the conditions, it's a miracle that. I mean, they, what they were fed, they were, you know, they were fed water and chickpeas and bread for 18 years and dirty water. Right. They slept on a concrete block, you know, in the freezing cold. Uh, I mean, people's bodies and minds mm. completely broke down, completely broke down. It's a, to me, these stories are always, what's incredible is that anybody manages to come out having held themselves together in a way, you know, you know, like, uh, absolutely. I mean, I definitely see myself as one of the guys who went <laughs> crazy right away. Like, that's it. I, I can't, I don't have the mental fortitude to live through 18 years of this. Um, and so, but comparing, I guess, comparing this book to the, the most famous, I would say, and best known account that came out so far, which is Tasmamart Cell Number 10. In a way, I'm surprised that this is the book that's been translated into English and not the other one. And who knows what happenstance that that's based on. Um, because I think Marzuki's book is much more detailed, uh, a much more cl clear explanation of how things worked of who people were uh of what of what led to their to their sentence and 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 then also i think of of how of how things you know of worked in the prison um i just I, in a way I, I i don't mean to sound too harsh but this book didn't add much to my understanding um, I, I, I think my there's ability some, right, to see the place. Right. I think there's some moral, some argument to be made for a moral imperative that Tahir bin Jaloun's this blinding absence of light was translated to English and became and it won the Impact Prize, and it, it's in libraries everywhere, and probably now in English certainly it's the best known book about Tasma Mart is okay. this fictionalization. So because Bina Bina sort of disavowed it in a way, um, or disavowed it, full stop, you know, allowing him to also tell his own story in English. That makes sense. So wait, so let me, so then, so then let's tackle Benjaloon. So before Bina Bina had published anything or perhaps written anything, Tahar Benjaloon, which is, who is the most famous Moroccan writer probably certainly in France 
um, winner of the Goncourt Prize, like a sort of real, you know, um, Franco-Moroccan celebrity at this point, uh, wrote a fictionalized version, but which hews very closely to Bina Bean's experience, like which which lifts a lot of, you know, exact biographical details, I think. Yeah, um, no, the, the section I read, there's an almost a very similar section in the blind, this blinding absence of light. Uh, you know, the, there's, he added more curse words, more dialogue. There's a, you know, there's more presence in the moment, but the anecdotes themselves are the same. And, and so Benjaloon wrote this based on supposedly a long interview that he conducted with Bina Bean. And then Bina Bean has, you know, like you say, disavowed the book or criticized the book or felt or, or said that his story was stolen in some way. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what he said. Uh, Basically, I think about... all, of, all of those things. He said okay. he didn't know Benjaloon was going to write a novel. If he wanted anyone to write a novel, it would have been his brother, Mahi. Um, right. Uh, that, in, in, that, you know, and that the story doesn't represent his experience. Right. And there was so, an, I mean, some sort of financial settlement as well. I mean, it's an interesting question, of course. I mean, normally you would say, you know, writers are thieves. I really kind of believe that. There were magpies, you know, they, they scavenge left and right and take everything they can. But that is, I mean, when a story sort of hews this closely, when it's this much of just a kind of fictionalized account that is really based on someone's testimony. Right. Just changing the names more or less. I think it, yeah, I think it gets a little more problematic. And then the other thing, I mean, this is the thing though, I have to be honest, I am biased against Benjaloon because I don't like his politics. I also don't like most of his later books. Um, But I also think he has become like a completely, you know, uh, apologist for 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 the Moroccan regime that he is not in, independent in and 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 he writes these really embarrassing columns uh in, in in these in these websites that are sort of like close to the you know uh, security services or whatever and and I and I and I don't and he you know constantly complaining about sort of like fundamentalism and obscurantism and stuff and 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 being the sort of worst kind of phony liberal uh that 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 you can be and and so I have an issue with sort of his his role as a public intellectual. And, but I and don't think it's now... it's not just you. So I think a number right. of the prisoners oh, no, also no. criticize. I'm not. <laughs> well, criticize him in this I'm moment. <laughs> a lot of prisoners right. criticized him in in that moment, saying, "Oh, great! Now that it's you know now that it's a thing that we're allowed to talk about it. Why didn't you say anything in the '90s?" So I just want to read a short thing that Ignace Dal, who who co-wrote the Marzuki book with Ahmed Marzuki, said it said he said that I got from this Johanna Selman article about accounts. It seems Tuzmamart has become quite fashionable these days. One of the kingdom's big writers awoke and made a debriefing with one of the survivors, the basis of his latest book. At least six journalists contacted Marzuki at the beginning of the millennium, asking him to write another book. Their eagerness made him smile, and he would curtly answer, where were you before we left prison? Yeah, yes. I think that's something that people bring up a lot about the Benjaloon book, which is that it was published after Hassan II's death, right? Um, Whereas once they were let out of prison in 91, 
because the existence of the prison had become known because of the sort of indefatigable work of some human rights activists, most, you know, many, many of them women, some of them married to political prisoners in France and the United States. Once it had become an issue under which there was international pressure and as he prepared his succession and 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 did a number of things to prepare that transition these people were let out in 91 then they still had to struggle very hard to be able to publish their accounts uh throughout the 90s they were intimidated they were censored they were threatened like it wasn't still easy to sort of write what had happened and then yes benjaloon sweeps in after the king's dead when there's like no risk anymore everybody's already written their accounts and he writes his um his version uh which gets all these accolades and which frankly i don't particularly like right I, I, so i i was also kind of a bit shocked so i i read first a number of reviews of it that were quite glowing i know it won this impact prize in english translation and i was going to say Maybe you'll have to tell me if it's the English translation, but the the lyricism of it really got on my nerves instantly. Yeah, I I agree. I, it it it's it doesn't it's not written in a recognizable voice, like a real voice. Like mm. it feels like someone's account just like smeared over with lyricism, just just like coated, just like greased with sort of you know. Um, this language that doesn't feel a hundred percent honest. No, I mean yes. here, he, here and there. There's beautiful turns of phrases here and there. Of course, he's a talented writer. Like he, he conveys something, but uh, it, it feel you can feel the like lack of connection between the style and the material somehow. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I, I just, when it, it said, who remembers the blood on the tablecloths, the blood on the bright green lawn? I couldn't in a zillion years imagine Aziz Binabina thinking that or, or any of the prisoners. It just was too pretty. Yeah. I mean, and it's not to say that I don't think that it's impossible to write a book about this kind of a traumatic experience that you haven't had. I don't think it's impossible to do that. I think it's very difficult. Um, I, I would say that one of them that I loved, that it, Hishem Matar's The Return, he writes about his father's, his father being imprisoned in a secret prison in Libya. Uh, and it is beautifully written and deeply felt, and it moved me tremendously. So I don't think it's impossible. That book is beautiful. Mm. That book is really beautiful. But he doesn't try to like ventriloquize his father's point of view or he tries, but he's like explicitly sort of telling you that he's like how he's trying, like, you know, how the kind of struggle to empathize and to imagine or to not imagine, you know, mm. uh, what his what someone he was very close to might have gone through but yes no i mean i i don't think it's impossible but i think you have to be really i don't you know uh you have to have a real very strong reason as an artist to be doing it you right. know you have right. to know why it is that you are the one who's going to tell this other person's story yes definitely I, I think if you have that reason, then maybe you can do it. Um, I, I, I don't, the Benjamin book doesn't make me feel like he, it didn't move me. 
No, I mean, I did. So as I read Aziz Binabina's uh, testimonials. I did find moments in it that I found as a person who occasionally assembles narratives myself, that there are like, it's a, it's a compelling scenario. You, you know, that the whole arc of it is so enormous and mm. such a, such a, some of these situations that, that he was in and you know, they illuminate something about humanity while also being so different from our day-to-day experiences where we, you know, are in the light and can move around at least a bit and um, can see other humans. So I see, you know, I see why it's, it it felt compelling to him, you know, also, of course, the others, you know, these stories were coming out. Um, You know, it was, Ignaz suggested it's a money train as well, but I think there must be something also of wanting to lay claim to your to your version. I mean there there may be something that on some level is even like therapeutic about doing it. I mean I, I mean you know they tried to erase them. Mm. Like like if they had killed them, they would have erased them. At one point, the only trace that was left of them was their bodies. And then when they got out, they were able to make this other trace or, you know, which was to write it. There, there must be a desire, depending on the person, but for some people to, to, to you know, to leave a trace of this um, when they've tried so hard to literally make you disappear. Right. Um Right. Yeah. So, so let's say there were, I think, 58 who went there, 28 survivors. I think a third of them ended up writing something or co-writing something. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's, yeah, what's, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that are ironic about. So then, you know, th- this, that they went from denying this person's existence to letting these people out, sort of indemnifying them. Eventually they gave them money, but no, no apology, I think, which was part of the sort of very flawed human rights uh, process uh, that took place in the late nineties where they, where they, you know, sort of, backed away from these terrible abuses that had that had that had taken place in previous decades uh, and sort of wanted to inaugurate a new era but only did it halfway you know there was of course no accountability you know there was no victims got to talk about what was done to them but they couldn't name the perpetrators it was a, it was a very kind of you know half-assed justice and reconciliation process like there was there was not really 100% of either um and uh, and and then sites like Tasma Mart, which really clearly should have been kept and turned into a museum of some kind or a memorial of some time, I think were razed to the ground. Mm. Um, and even as I think, you know, s- similar similar kinds of secret prisons continue to exist. Uh, you know, uh, across North Africa, across the region, whether it's as part of, uh, you know, U.S. rendition programs of of suspected terrorists, or 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 you know, for for tens of thousands of of political prisoners, uh, you know, in Egypt, or 
the other side that you're fighting in Yemen, I mean, or Syria, like there's been uh, probably more secret detention sites and places like this have existed in the last 10 years than ever before. Right. Right. So it's really depressing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting that this kind of stands in for a lot of these secret detention sites as as being in the past, as being a thing that is over and done with, that we can now tell stories about because it's no longer there. Precisely because it's no longer there. That's the only time you can talk about it. And yet the practice, I don't think, has has gone away, um, you know, there or or elsewhere. It's weird because it's sort of it's sort of talked about as exceptional, this site. And there's mm. other examples of that. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a famous prison in Syria too. Where where is the where does the shell take place? Uh isn't that also sort of it's the it's one of the Tasmamarts of Syria. It's right. infamous. I mean yes. these places that become infamous as if, you know, they they are the one and only sites and then Right. Right. Rather than as a continuity, yeah, 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 and the sh- is- the shell was a very different book from from any of these books bec- to me it to me, the experience of reading the shell was utterly devastating, like being punched in the chest and wanting to weep and tear out my eyeballs and but and also feeling moments of joy and delight <laughs> at at the small at, at the relationships he built and this was a, a fictionalized version of his of his story but i think it hewed pretty closely to his own life it had so much what what whatever was fictionalized or non-fictionalized it had so much emotional truth to it mm. that I mean, whether some of these things happened to him or happened to somebody else, or he changed a detail, you know, here or there, or he was charged with some, I, it, it doesn't matter. Like everything in it felt true in the sense that it, it, it was the kind of thing that happened there. Right. And it was so powerful. I, I, I actually, I don't, I'm not sure how to, I thought about that book a lot also compared to these books and, and, and none of these accounts, to be honest, had, was like you say, as, as powerful as that book by the Syrian writer and prisoner. And I was trying to figure out why. Well, there's something in the human, in the relationship that he, that, that intense close friendship that he develops that uh, that to me really sort of reached into my chest and, and grabbed my heart and, and pulled me through that narrative. I mean, this one in, in particular, Aziz Binabina's story is a little bit like this one thing happened and then this one other thing happened and then this one other thing happened. Where He, he also, he doesn't really expose himself. He doesn't, right, right. he doesn't, and this makes it seem like I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of into some sort of like, you know, prison voyeurism. Like I want people to sort of like, you know, share how, how they broke down or something. I don't, it's not that, like you say, it's terribly painful to read, but even in little things like 
you don't feel like he really lets you in. You, you, you don't really get a sense. There's sort of a lot of general talk about, you know, soldiering on and accepting one's fate and, and finding faith in God. And none of it feels really personal. Right. Or, yeah. No, I, I felt his voice more in that, in the little anecdote of sort of mean vindictiveness. I felt that that truly and really happened um, more than, yeah, there was a lot of, um, I came to accept Islam and I accepted uh, what was happening to me and I didn't question it. And I forgot it. my former life and mm-hmm. I, and, and, and also sort of all these generalist like, you know, sort of generalizations, which sometimes are contradictory. Like half the time it, it seems like he's describing camaraderie between them, but then half the time it seems like nobody gets along at all. And, you know, I, I have to, t- I don't know, it's, it, it, you know, or, or describing like people's acceptance, but then actually, no, they can't accept it. I, I don't know. There were so many, uh, sections of that Khalifa book that like, I can, you know, remember so clearly mm. that were scenes that just, that just broke your heart. And, and and like you say, for the good or for the bad, like in the sense that there's just so much terrible things. And then when people are able to be kind or be generous or be brave under the circumstances, it's extraordinary. Uh, I mean, it, it reminds you, I, I don't know, it reminds me so much of like accounts of concentration camps. You know, it reminds me of like Primo Levi. Like it's mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, yes, the, the, the human spirit put under... He, he and body under the most un, un, unbearable pressure. Um, I guess I would only say that it seems to me that that's not that what Aziz Bina Bina wanted to do was he wanted to write a sort of just yeah this lo- this list of memorials to each of the people who who passed, and that this book is somehow sort of a knitted together. Uh, this this guy who died uh, in this month and the next guy who died in the next month and then the guy who died in the month after that. And they're much more about their stories. He does, he tells about a bit about their childhoods, this guy who um, his grandfather didn't want him to study and he ran the whole 15 kilometers to the school, uh, but without telling anything about his own childhood, his own experiences. So I, I just, it felt like he didn't, that that wasn't his project to sort of reflect on himself or in, right. instead he just wanted to tell these stories. And I think, and that's absolutely, I mean, to just say I was there mm. and these other people were there and this is what happened to us. I think that's a, a, anyway, a valid contribution. It's an important, you know, part of the, historical record like you know by all means like the more accounts there are of what happened and also on a human level like of course you know tell 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 your story as you wish um i just uh, i, I mean, particularly feel it because if he felt that his his personal story was in some way erased by 
Benjaloon's story. Right. But he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really. He doesn't address Tahar Benjaloon's book right. at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know enough really about that controversy. I can only imagine um, how you would feel <laughs> uh, sort of having your story retold in a way that you're not even satisfied with. Uh, and the thing is, I do also, so I sort of fundamentally believe that, that someone else telling your story can't actually rob you. Mm. Like that, that no one can tell your story the way you can and the way you will, and that stories aren't finite. And so, you know, I can think that it's wrong for that person to have done that, but I don't think that they've really taken it away from you. I think it's still yours to tell. I really, I really believe that. I don't think it's a zero sum game, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. Publishing market is another thing. I'm talking on like the level of, you know, as a person, as a storyteller, like, uh, you know, um, regard that I can have my judgment as to whether someone else should have told that story or not, or, or how well they did it. Uh, the other thing that I think is interesting to talk about, like you said, he reveals very, very little about himself and his childhood and the like incredible twist in his life is that his father was the man who was spent his days at the side of Hassan II, like following the King everywhere, telling him stories and jokes and poems and anecdotes till like, you know, he fell asleep every night like his closest companion for decades. And and when his son was accused of being part of this coup, inside, he, he instantly reneged him. Right. And not only that, but then Aziz Binabin's brother, Mahi Binabin, who's an artist and a novelist, wrote a book about this father in which at the book concludes with the return of Aziz bin Abin from his 20 years in prison. Like that's one of the final things to happen in the story. At which point the father may already be dead. I can't remember. It's mostly a description, a, a fictionalized, again, he tries to imagine kind of his father's point of view and his father's life. It's not clear to me how much contact any of them really had with their father. Maybe mm. he spent all his time at court. But so there's another sort of from another angle, you have like another little piece, puzzle piece of this terrible family tragedy uh, told by another member of the family. Uh, and even he, I think none of them knows quite how to write about, like really, really write about the position their father took. Right. He, to me, in Aziz Bin Abina seems uh, sh sort of shockingly forgiving about it, or at least he just doesn't want to talk about it here in public in front of the rest of us. You know, he says, which you can understand why my father did it. Um, sure, maybe right. in that moment I can, but to then maintain that position for 18 years. And many other family members, Muhammad Raiz's daughter, Alham, you know, uh, uh, wives, um, uh, mothers, push this issue again and again, trying to make it known. So his father sticking by the king instead of him is, wow, 
Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, yes, he, you'd think he might have, uh, I mean, he really, he really chose the king over his son forever and in every way and remained his, you know, his, uh, his fool, as they say, although that doesn't really give the sense of actually how, how important and prestigious this function was of hanging out and entertaining the king all the time and conversing with him all the time. Uh, yeah, I think that the word jester is, is maybe gives an incorrect impression of sort of Henry VIII's, um, you know, the the local dwarf that you threw rotten fruit at. Um, someone with bells on their hat. Like, right, yeah. right. Rather than somebody who's sort of highly educated and knows a lot of stories and, and lore and law and information and is a confidant as well as apparently an extremely gifted storyteller right yeah i mean you never know you never know if he did he believe his son was innocent or guilty does it matter i guess it didn't matter um right and that's that's another thing that's also a bit so yusuf fadil also wrote a novel about about ginebina's father um i think he also is sort of a compelling public figure what novel people, is that? Uh, so he wrote a trilogy. Um, one of them is about secret imprisonment. That's a beautiful, no, a blue, a rare bluebird uh, flies with me. And then one of them is the Bina, Bina Bina book. And that is a uh, beautiful white cat walks with me. And then the, the, then the, the last one is called Farah, but it was translated into English as red fish swims with me, I think. So I meant to mention Fadl's book about, because uh, he has like an, uh, uh, one of the pilots who gets sent to Tazmamart or something like it, right? And, yes. But it's yes. narrated from the point of view of the fiance who he leaves behind, who yes. one tries to find him. I meant to mention that. I did not know that he also wrote a book about Binebin's father. That's crazy. Like half of Morocco's literary establishment has somehow written some story about this family. Right. Well, I think it's a sort of a big, so if you imagine, I don't know, that every big Lebanese writer has written about something about the civil war. I think this is like a big thing that you have to grapple with. The years of lead, this, you know, this particular family, Tazma Mart, secret imprisonments, uh, you know, not to the extent that the Lebanese Civil War somehow is like a coming of age to be able to write something about it, but you know, but it's a, a big thing to yeah, say. Yeah, no, I just, be, I just mean, but like, uh, of course, the family, the story of this particular family is very evocative, but I just mean like, like the the constant focus on them, you know, <laughs> like, right? I I find that interesting. I think there is something. Um, Because I don't know, I'm I'm not I, I'm going to try and say something that I haven't really articulated yet to myself. But you know, because these story, because what they did is such a kind of, you know, it's such an absolute punishment. It's like a medieval punishment by an absolute king, right? There's like we're going to throw you away. We're going to th- put you in a hole. Throw away the keys deny that you're there, but also let everybody kind of know somewhere that you're there. 
you're, 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 you're under the trap door, you're up in the tower, like, you know, everybody kind of knows, but doesn't know, and nobody can say anything about it. Right. It's this right. really scary. Although I think you're slandering the medieval era. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, like, in this, it's feudal. I mean, it was like absolute power. Like, right. The, the king, the monarchy had that kind of power. And, and, and because, you know, that power is also sort of the same kind of power that fathers have in their families. I mean, because there is this overlap between authoritarianism and patriarchy and fatherly authority and kingly authority and religious authority, because, you know, the way people talk about all these kinds of men is also as their fathers, right? You right. know, I mean, I mean, the rulers get talked about this way. Um, and then the punishment is sort of like, you know, it's personal. It's not like an institutional punishment. It's you betrayed me. And so, you know, you don't exist for me anymore, which is what both the king and his own biological father said to him. Yeah, no. So I, it, it's impossible to know from, from this account how he felt, whether he felt guilty towards his father. Certain, certainly, I think uh, all the accounts I read did express some level of remorse for being involved in this, um, if not personal guilt that they, you know, that they had planned it or knew anything about it. But to what extent did he feel that he, that he had disappointed his father? I mean, that to me is so, that could, I could break my own heart just thinking about it. Yeah. And to what extent did he feel that his father had disappointed him? If yeah, he even yeah, dares to, sure. to think that. Um, yeah. I mean, and in a, in a, it, I, I do see why sort of so many writers have been attracted to telling the story through this particular human entanglement, right? Like the fact that the father is so close to the king and the son falls from grace so completely and that bond is snapped, you know, is, is, a, is, a, is a particular human tragedy within this larger historical tragedy that is very like compelling to try to tell to try to tease out to try to guess like how people felt and um so uh yeah so there's there's so we'll have a long list of show notes because there's been so many different books written about this particular chapter of Moroccan right, history right and books written about the books written about it books written right. about the testimonial writing that came out of it right I mean I I would say like I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, like I said, it's not like the process has discontinued. On the other hand, I feel like some of this writing at this particular time when it, the existence of Tesmamart was, re, was revealed, you know, not to be uh, sentimental or, or naive about it, but it was like really important. It really mattered that people were finally able to say what had happened mm. there to them. I feel like it's an example of that making a difference, but it's always in a particular time and place. And then it seems like we go back to, to doing these things over and over again. Well, but that doesn't necessarily make it inevitable. I hope. <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing. I don't believe, I, I don't believe anything is 
inevitable. I, I, yeah. I'm trying to think of somebody said this recently. I think it's a Beckett quote. Uh, it said, it's something like, uh, try again, fail again, fail, oh, fail better. better, fail better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was actually Cornell West who said this on the CNN interview recently, uh, in, in, in relation to some of the ways we're, we're both failing and trying in the States recently. Um, so yeah, maybe we can, maybe we can end on the hope of failing better. Yes. Okay. And abolish these prisons also. <laughs> Yes, among other things. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Um, we'll put all the books we mentioned in the show notes. And uh, don't forget to uh, share and rate the show if you like it. All right. Thanks, Ursula. Thanks, dear. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.